Matthew chapter 5 this morning, please. And we are preaching through the book of Matthew on Sunday morning. And we find ourselves in the Beatitudes. So we are going to read once again this morning the first ten verses of chapter 5. And then we're going to look at one specific aspect of the Beatitudes this morning. Let's go ahead and stand, please. Matthew chapter 5. Verse number 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they, I'm sorry, no, verse number 10, I apologize. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And let's pray. O Lord, I pray that you would help me today to preach to say what you mean, or help me to understand and to feel the weight of responsibility that your word is not mine to edit or to twist, but simply to preach. And then I pray, Lord, that we would hear it correctly, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would radically change our appetites and our interest, that you would be at work in us to make us interested in you, that we would want to know you and to be like you, to be able to think the way you think and to act the way you act and to respond the way you respond that we would in sincerity and truth be the children of our Father who is in heaven. And Lord, we are then totally dependent upon you for this. We cannot produce it or manufacture it out of our humanity. We look to your divinity and pray your help today. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Thank you. Oh, how can I untrue? 
the uh, <clears throat> Sermon on the Mount gets a lot of use by a lot of people for a lot of reasons. We've talked a little bit about that. <clears throat> Quoted by preacher and politician um, <clears throat> in a wide variety of settings, many of which are wrong. The reality is that the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon on the description of people who will live in the kingdom of God in a summons to be a part of it. If you look at the last chapter of it, Matthew chapter 7, you will discover that the Sermon on the Mount closes with what we might call an invitation. It is an appeal to make a decision. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, this is you. But if you will not hear these sayings of mine, this is you. Well, what are the characteristics and what are the attitudes of those who are willing to hear the sayings of Jesus? And folks, we must understand that while salvation is offered freely to all human beings, and they may have it simply by believing on Jesus Christ and calling to him. That there is much more to that than simply compelling somebody to say some words and having meaningless words tumble out of their mouth. And that is where the first ten of these beatitudes come in. And really, not even so much the first ten as the first, or the ones we find in the first ten verses, as the ones we are actually working our way through right now. We have noticed that all of these beatitudes, which is a Latin word for blessing, all of these beatitudes begin with just that, the promise of blessing, which is not a promise about emotional happiness, but a reference to the good standing one has before God. Blessed is the man in Psalm 1 that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. That's not just a reference to his emotional happiness. He is a man in a good position before God. We have talked about the fact that all of these beatitudes have a promise attached to them. That there is kind of a formula to each one of these blessed. You are enjoying a right standing before God with this result because of what is in the middle, this attribute or activity or action. And we've noticed further that these are a package, that they cannot be divided. You don't get to pick one. In fact, if you'll take just a moment to look, for instance, again, if you will, please, and, and we've been dealing with this, but I want to make sure we get it. Verse number three, blessed are the poor in spirit. There's is the kingdom of heaven. Is right now, present tense, you have it. Verse number 10, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right now, present tense, it is yours. There is, folks, something about the kingdom of God that is present but when you read through the rest of them, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9, all of those promises are future. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are they that mourn, they shall be comforted. There is this inclusion of attributes, and we will not really deal with it specifically this morning, but I would encourage you further to understand, we've kind of divided these and we've looked at the way that they fit. They fit together, number one is a package. They describe the kingdom of heaven. Those who live there, all the way down through verse number eight, they are describing the attributes of those who are in the kingdom of heaven. But in verse number nine, there's going to come a shift. People who are now doing certain things. And there will then be this ultimate result. Those who have the right attitude about God, that have experienced his work so that they produce the right kind of works, will experience this result. They will be persecuted. It is the natural consequence. And we will work our way through that and look at that this morning. I want to call our attention specifically to verse number five. Jesus said, blessed, and blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Not poor in money, but poor in attitude. And that is a reference to a person's spirit towards God. Not just somebody who is humble and downcast over their earthly situation, but somebody who is poor, destitute in spirit before God, with this subsequent result that they then mourn. When God is at work to bring people to the position where they will cry out to him, folks, they have to understand the reason that they are crying. Nobody wants a Savior who does not really believe that he needs to be saved. Nobody wants to be helped across the street unless they're unable to cross the street on their own. And this is the work of God to bring people to a condition of knowing their need And much of the Sermon on the Mount is not giving us guidelines for live, but is graphically illustrating the fact that we are not equipped in our own to be members of this kingdom. The chapter begins seeing the multitudes. You've got to go back into chapter 4 where we're introduced to the ministry of Jesus where he is thronged by people who see his miracles and are fascinated by his works. But he's not just a miracle worker. He's a preacher and he gathers those people and now he is going to proclaim to them what is critical, this message. Blessed then are the meek. Folks, we who are genuinely saved must have in some measure been broken in our spirit before the Lord. To have experienced some emotional reaction to our lostness, which has produced in us this attribute of meekness. Now I realize that I, I stand 
or I place you this morning on a knife edge because anytime I preach a message like this, genuinely saved people tend to become at times almost discouraged about their salvation. But the Bible does teach us that genuine believers are surrounded by those who simply profess. I got a very intriguing and insightful question last week by a man, and he said, do you think there is such a thing as lost church members? Well, I can certainly tell you this. The Bible anticipates people who are like lost church members. Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians, to the church in Galatia, and in it expressed the concern that maybe over some of those people he had actually labored in vain that their salvation had not come. I'm not trying to scare you, not at all. In fact, I'm going to end this morning with every effort and attempt to encourage those of you who are genuinely saved. But I want to hammer on this, folks, that salvation is not just an exercise of the mind. It involves the mind, but it's not just an exercise of the mind. This is supernatural. This is something that can only be done by the work of God. And when he is at work, he is doing just that. He is working. Blessed then the poor in spirit. Blessed those who mourn. In our world in which so many even church services are simply designed around ways to make you feel good, Jesus Christ pronounces a blessed condition of that man who is in mourning. And they are meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What is meekness? What does it mean to be meek? The word actually means to be gentle. It means to be humble. If a gentle breeze was blowing the Greeks would describe it as humble. It was a gentle breeze. William Barclay, who has written many commentaries, oftentimes it cannot be trusted, but who is nevertheless a master at understanding the Greek culture, says that the word meekness is a word with a caress in it. The Greek philosopher Aristotle described it as the midway point between no anger and excessive anger. But by far, by far, the single biggest way that the Greeks used that word was to describe an animal that had been tamed. If you trained your dog, it was meek.
If you taught your dog to sit and to lay down and to roll over and to obey, you had a meek animal. And the point, folks, is this, that meekness. Jesus did not say, blessed are the weak, blessed are the timid, blessed are the fearful. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, blessed are the people whose strength is under control. We used to have a dog. When our children were small, we had a big dog. He weighed, oh, 90, 95 pounds. He thought he was a lap dog. I mean, that was his ambition in life was to be a lap dog. And when our youngest daughter, Jennifer, was very small, he took a peanut butter sandwich out of her hand. And some of you may not want to listen to this, but I beat that dog to within an inch of his life. And uh, we worked to develop the attitude of meekness in that dog. Um, it was not always successful. There are a couple of times when he really got out of control, but <clears throat> a 95-pound dog needs to be tamed or he's dangerous. They need to be meek. Now let's go back to Matthew 5 for just a minute because we're going to look at Matthew 5 very quickly and then I'm going to ask you to look at Psalm 37. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What's really interesting about that is that in Matthew 5, 5, Jesus is actually quoting the Old Testament. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth is a quotation from the 37th Psalm. And so let me ask you, if you would please, to turn there for a few minutes. And we're, just gonna, we're not going to spend a long time or be able to work through this in its entirety. The 37th Psalm, as you can see, is a long one. It has 40 verses. But we might find it helpful to understand the setting of the 37th Psalm. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does it mean to be meek? It means to be gentle. It means to be tamed. Can I use this word? It means, in a sense, to be domesticated. Which means, by the way, folks, as an aside, that it means to be something that is not very popular in American culture, because we don't like domesticated people. Nobody's ever going to entice you to watch a movie about a domesticated man. You want to watch the superhero. You want to watch the guy who bucks the system, who defies the odds, who resists authority. There's where the appeal to our nature is. Psalm 37, let's look at verse number 1, because it sets the tone and the subject of the psalm. Fret not thyself because of evildoers. Are you troubled by the evil in the world? In a stew about its ever-increasing dimension? Neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. Didn't you love the main article of today's Omaha World Herald? You see it? The story of our very own founder of the Oriental Trading Company, who in one year 
lost $112 million gambling in casinos. Did you read that and think of all that you could do with that money? Neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. Can you imagine, folks? Is it fathomable to you to, be, um, to imagine to be so rich that you could afford to lose $112 million in a year? There's just not something, there's something not right about that. When, is there, folks, isn't there something not right about that kind of stuff? when missionaries around the world are scrambling for health care and travel and living in destitute conditions and so many of the unbelieving world have so much money. That's the context and the setting for the 37th Psalm. Verse number 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. This is, folks, a perpetual trauma to believers, the prosperity of the wicked. And God has a solution. Here is what God says to his people. Verse 1. Don't fret. Don't fret because, verse 2, they shall soon be cut down like the grass. Verse number 7, rest in the Lord. Verse number 3, or verse number 4, or verse number 3, I'm sorry, trust in the Lord, do good. Verse number 4, delight thyself also in the Lord. Verse 7, rest in the Lord. Verse number 8, cease from anger. Verse number 11, but the meek shall inherit the earth. But the meek shall inherit the earth. Folks, once again, we need to understand that these attributes and attitudes that Jesus is talking about are not about our interaction with other people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I've had a bad day. I got laid off from my job. My finances are collapsing. I'm really depressed. I'm poor in spirit. I'm blessed. No, 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 no. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit before the Lord. Blessed are they that mourn. Those who grieve. I lost my job and my finances are a disaster and I'm, I'm traumatized. That's legitimate, but that's not what he's talking about there. Blessed are they who are mourning because they are poor in spirit, because they're about to learn how destitute they are spiritually from what Jesus said. Blessed are the meek. Not in our relationship to each other. Although that is a good thing, but blessed are those who are meek before the Lord. Look, folks, don't be fretting against God over all of this injustice. Troubled and turmoiled in your spirit when the biblical response is meekness. Gentleness before the Lord. We're talking about your being meek before the Lord. Go back to Matthew 5. Here are all these people, folks. 
there's a multitude of people. Most of them are not rich. Most of them are not powerful. Most of them are poor. And they live in an oppressive society. They don't have free speech. Well, they can say whatever they want, but they can also die very quickly without a lot of to do. Blessed are you, says Jesus, that are meek. Folks, do we understand this? I mean, really. We keep having these conversations. We do it. We at Westwood Heights, believers do it everywhere. Every place you go, we have the conversation. We were in Tulsa for a couple of days. People talk about those kind of things. We talk about all the trouble and the evil in the world. And we talk about what the politicians are doing to us. And God is not saying that's not real. Jesus, however, is making this point. Don't you understand that the single greatest source of trouble in your own life is you yourself? Folks, the greatest source of evil that I have to deal with is not a government entity. It is my own heart. The largest problem that I have is not anybody else. It is me. Blessed are the meek. What is it? It is gentleness. What is its context? God makes that promise in the 37th Psalm to people who are agitated about all of the evil in the world. What does it look like? Well, you, you, can take, you can turn to I'm just going to read these to you, but uh, if you want, turn to Psalm 25, 9. Again, folks, we're not talking about people who are spineless. We're not talking about people who are cowards. We're not talking about people who are timid. That's not meekness. We're talking about people whose attitude, spirits, strength have been tamed. In Psalm 25.9, we find them, that attitude, like this. It is talking about man's relationship to God. Verse, 20, verse 9 of Psalm 25, the meek, there it is, will he guide in judgment, and the meek Will he teach his way? In Zephaniah chapter 2, right near the end of your Old Testament, if you want to turn there, I'm just going to read to you the verse, Zephaniah chapter 2, verse number 3. If you don't want to turn to Zephaniah, turn to James chapter 1, and I'm going to have us all look at that. Zephaniah chapter 2, Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, Seek meekness, it may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. James chapter 1, verse number 19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, James 1, 19, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, 
slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Or how about this, folks? Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew 11, Jesus has been pronouncing judgment and woe upon unbelieving cities. And then in verse number 27, he transitions and says that all things are delivered to him by the Father. The Father has handed all things over to him. And then we have Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek. Jesus, folks, Jesus was meek before his Father. We dealt with this all the way through the Gospel of John, that Jesus kept explaining to people that he was, and, and, and he wasn't dismissing this as an excuse. I mean, we tend to excuse it. I was just doing my job. That's what the Nazi leadership said. I was just following orders. Jesus is not just dismissing or excusing himself. He is making a valid point that he was the Father's agent. That he could only speak those things that he had been empowered to speak. That he could only do those things that the Father had empowered him to do. And the Father had handed over him all judgment. We looked at that last week, John 5, 22. So that the Son would be honored the same way that the Father was, John 5, 23. But the point, folks, is this. That's what Jesus meant when he said he was meek. Jesus didn't just go around like some kind of a spiritual loose cannon. He was under the control of his father. He was meek. Paul identifies this as one of the fruit of the spirit. Folks, this is not just a human attribute to invent, okay? I'm kind of quiet, and I don't like to make waves, and I don't like to call attention to myself, so I'm just going to be a meek person. Now, you know, great, thank you for not causing trouble. That's not what we're talking about. This is an attitude. The word, by the way, is an adjective. It, it modifies a noun. The blessed is the meek person. What kind of person? The one who is meek. What does meek mean? Gentle. Gentle before who? Gentle before God. What does God do to the meek person? This is a person who is willing to be instructed by the Lord. This is somebody who is tame before God. This is someone who is... To come back to an unflattering word, domesticated. Someone who is submissive, not antagonistic. Not fighting and resisting God. 
And by the way, folks, there's the rub for believers because every genuine believer is aware of how often he fights the Lord, isn't he? I mean, if I just stood here and told you now, folks, since I've been saved, I've never put up a fuss with anything that God has wanted for me. I hope you wouldn't believe that. There's no way that it would be true. So here's what we have. It's what we always have. We have, on the one hand, a group of people who are not meek before the Lord. Because they're not genuinely saved. So they take exception to everything God does and everything God says and everything God wants. And for them, every time God comes into the picture, theirs is a life of constant and constant warring and resisting and objecting. They're not meek because they've never been broken in spirit. They've never felt the weight of their sinfulness. But there are people who are saved and their sensitivity is to the fact that so often they are not meek before the Lord. They have been meek. They are meek at times, but there are times that it flares up. Let me give to you this quick word of encouragement. 1778, John Newton wrote a hymn. We know him for Amazing Grace. Former slave trader. <clears throat> we never sing the hymn. I don't even know the tune. I think you can find it in some songbooks. But he wrote a letter to a friend explaining the hymn, how he came to write the tune. And this is what he said. <clears throat> Last week, we had a lion in town. I went to see him. He was wonderfully tame, as familiar with his keeper, as docile and obedient as a spaniel. Yet the man told me he had his surly fits when he durst not touch him. No looking glass, no mirror, John Newton says, writing of this lion could express my face more clearly than this lion did my heart. Is that not us? I can be. I can be very docile before the Lord. I can say to the Lord and mean it, your will be done. But I have my surly fits. And that's what Newton said of himself. Oh, I have my surly fits too, seasons when I relapse into the savage again, as though I'd forgotten all. People ask Jesus, will there be many saved? And the answer to that, folks, biblically, is yes and no. There will be a lot of people saved numerically. But relative to the number of people not saved, no. There will be a great number of people saved. Revelation 7, I saw a great number that no man could, great multitude that no man could number saved. 
But relative to the whole of humanity, Jesus explains it this way. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For broad is the gate and wide is the path that leadeth to destruction. And many there be that go in thereat. But straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life. And few there be that go in thereat. Now, again, the Lord tames those who are saved. It doesn't mean we're not like a lion that doesn't roar from time to time, but we have been domesticated. I can only hope this morning that the Spirit of God has dealt with us faithfully. I mean, I, I know that he will, has has convinced us of his faithful dealings when he talks to our own hearts about whether we have never ever been humbled before him or whether we're like this tamed lion that Newton wrote about. Just a couple of the stanzas. Though by the Lord preserved and fed, he proves rebellious still, and while he eats his maker's bread. Is that not us? Eating God's good food, and while he eats his maker's bread, resists his holy will. Lord, thank you for feeding me so that I can do whatever I want and not anything that you want. Let's pray this morning.